Here on Pop Cultured, we mostly talk about television, movies, the latest internet trend, or celebrity news. But we want to take some time to talk about the way we process tragedy and conflict online. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has captured the world's attention, but the way we're following along is different than any other war before. People have started calling this the TikTok war. Not because the violence is fake or because the conflict is contained to the internet, but because it's the most social media documented war ever. There are a lot of TikToks coming out of Ukraine, showing the destruction in the country or what life's like during a war. It's still hard to tell what's real and what's fake, but scrolling on TikTok these days can look more like a war reporter's feed than a fun little app for dancing. And almost immediately after Russia announced its plans to invade, memes about World War III started flooding our timelines. There are memes comparing the war in Ukraine to Star Wars and the Marvel Universe, memes lusting after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. One put his head on the body of Iron Man, a few call him Zaddy. There are also a lot of memes insulting Russian President Vladimir Putin. Some talk about his height, others compare him to history's worst war criminals. There are memes criticizing the United Nations' response to the invasion, and memes that just generally lament our revolving door of world disasters. And to complicate it even more, the Ukrainian government has been sharing memes from their official Twitter account for months. Most of them bring attention to the country's ongoing struggle with Russia. This isn't the first time we've memed, TikToked, and tweeted our way through uncertain times, and it definitely won't be the last. Welcome to Pop Cultured. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, a conversation about war in the time of memes. Are there things that should be off-limits for internet fodder? And what does our response on social media to the Russian-Ukrainian war tell us about where we're headed as a culture? Memes are really powerful communication tools because they reach such a wide audience, and they're short, and they can kind of cut through the noise. Jessica Myrick is a professor of communications at Penn State. Whereas the average person in the U.S., for example, doesn't read the New York Times. That is an influential outlet, so to say. But, you know, the average person has to pick up their kids from school and work and get food on the table and help their family members out. Like they don't have a lot of time to always watch the news or really deeply consider these issues. But, you know, while they're waiting at school to pick up their kids, they might see a meme or someone might send them a meme. So because they're shareable, quick, easily digestible, they're actually going to get to a much wider range of people and can help shape their opinions, especially early in this period when lots more people are paying attention. And with more people paying attention, there's inevitably an argument about what memes cross the line or if we should be memeing at all, like what we're seeing with Ukraine. With Ukraine and Russia... It's the memes often that are about Zelensky, about leaders, like leaders are powerful people. And generally humor that attacks powerful people is pretty socially acceptable because you're punching up. So memes that attack Putin show how much of a leader Zelensky is compared to Putin. Then people are, are probably generally gonna like those, but other memes are probably less palatable depending on your stance or your background or your connections to the particular situation. This has shown a really amazing level of global solidarity against one foe. 
everybody, unless it's supporting this cause, people are going to be pretty sensitive to it right now. And that sensitivity isn't new. Political cartoons that poke fun at politicians and even wars have been around for a long time. And there were debates about those, too. But... The difference now when we see memes about difficult situations and backlash to them is that the backlash can be so immediate and the moral outrage of social media can build really fast. And there's been research about comparing outrage online versus in person. And when we see other people outraged, we are more likely to get outraged. So the speed of it and intensity of social media and the immediacy of it is different. But of course, we've seen efforts to censor or police ideas or commentary that people find too sharp or too intense. But social media make it so fast that it then can cause even backlash to the backlash. And also the news media report on the social media just amplifies the wave. So I think we're probably just seeing what we used to see, but a lot faster and and more intense. Memeing our way through uncertainty has become the Internet's collective trauma response. And the past few years have been pretty traumatic. Every day, your timeline is probably littered with memes about a possible world war, high gas prices, global warming, Rihanna's pregnancy outfits, and the years-long pandemic we're still in. And while that may seem like a lot, think back to 2020 and all the memes about our descent into lockdown. Turns out, they might have been useful. I did some research on COVID-19 memes and found that people who looked at COVID-19 memes actually felt less stressed and more able to cope with the stressors of COVID-19 than people who we showed unrelated memes or no memes at all. And it seems to be that because memes are short, they help you think about a stressful topic, but not in a really long or difficult draining way. And the other thing about memes is that they are shared. And you see something usually someone else has created. So it, part of it is probably feeling less alone, uh, knowing other people are are dealing with this, thinking about this, um, interested in this topic, or worried about this topic. So it's also the sense of connection where you're reading a news article, you might not necessarily be able to tell how other people around the world are feeling. But with memes, you can see like, someone took the time to make this. So as a consumer of memes, you're connecting with the other people who are liking, sharing, reposting those memes. And then it's also an outlet for people who are making them too, using your your concerns, your stress to communicate and to connect with other people. So I think part of it is the, the power of them to be shared and connected. And that's just this implicit cue that even if you don't realize it, your brain recognizes when a meme is shared with you, other people are feeling this way. You are in, in a larger group of people and uh, humans are hardwired to want connection. So memes might help us feel better about the state of the world, but do they help us understand it better? I think there are instances where memes can actually inform us or help us understand, but it's probably not just one meme. It's probably seeing memes over time where it's an issue that you didn't know much about or you weren't really interested in before, and then you start to notice them more and more as they catch your attention. Because what psychology finds is that once we start to be curious about something, we want more and more information about it. And so then we're probably just more likely to even seek out or notice those memes about that same topic. 
knowledge can accumulate over time with memes. We, we've seen this in political satire programming, like The Daily Show. What we found was that people sort of had to have a minimum baseline of knowledge or else they wouldn't think the show was funny because it was about current events and politics. But once you had that very minimum baseline of knowledge, people could learn something from political comedy programming. So it's probably a similar effect and depends on if you know viewing the meme causes you to be more like it on the same topic or even to Google it or pay more attention when you do see those news headlines on the same subject pass by. So a meme or seeing a few memes might give us some insight into a complex situation. But Dr. Myrick told me that it's really hard to gauge if people are actually more informed collectively because of memes. Of course, seeing a bunch of jokes about World War III or Putin's need for therapy won't tell you as much about the war as reading a well-reported explainer. But memes do reach more people. I asked Professor Myrick if that's a good or bad thing. In media research and media practice, we we talk a lot about how the first step to knowledge gain or persuasion is attention. And if somebody is never going to sit down and watch the nightly news or read a lot on a news website, then I say a meme is a fantastic way to learn. I would rather someone have a general idea of what's going on than have no idea of what's going on and feel like they have no grasp on what's going on in the world. And I'd rather take little doses of it anywhere people can get it in hopes of making them feel like connected, engaged citizens instead of being totally absent from the debate. If you make a really great looking meme and it's funny and it goes viral and it happens to be something that informs people and is factually correct, that's great. But like a meme that is propaganda and mostly lies and not factually correct that looks really great may also go viral and be just as effective. It seems like opening ourselves up to memes also opens ourselves up to misinformation. The power of visuals and the power of satire can be really persuasive regardless of if the information is true. So we have to be aware of misinformation. And I think the downside right now is the people with the facts and trying to fight misinformation are not fighting fire with fire. You know, if you have this really calm, low-key, long, in-depth New York Times interview compared with some really witty viral misinformation memes, the misinformation memes are what is going to get around. So I think the people who do have information that we need to hear also need to modernize their own communication approaches and and understand the power of visuals and pop culture figures to help bridge important information to the public who needs to hear it too. And you know who seems to understand that lesson? The Ukrainian government. For months, the country's official Twitter account has been posting political memes addressing the escalating threat from Russia. And it's not just memes. The Ukrainian government is pretty internet and entertainment savvy, too. I mean, the president was a former comedian. You may have seen the headlines about actor Sean Penn fleeing Ukraine on foot. He was there taping a documentary about the country's ongoing conflict with Russia. And in an official statement that was just a tad shady, the Ukrainian government complimented Penn for his bravery something they said others, particularly Western politicians, have been lacking. Of course, since the invasion, Ukraine's Twitter account has become more somber and serious with appeals for help and support in their war effort. But they did tweet a political cartoon of Hitler finally touching Vladimir Putin's face with the caption, This is not a meme, but our reality right now. 
Ukraine has actually been using memes for a couple of years now and actually tagging Russia in them. So whereas they may not have the same military power or other resources that Russia has, they seem to be pretty savvy as far as connecting with people across the world, because a lot of these memes they're putting out are in English, actually. It might seem trivial to some people, but when it's all you've got and you're underpowered compared to your foe, it's really, really smart way to get attention and to advance your cause without having to write a huge foreign policy brief or do a long interview. I think the hope is to get the attention of anybody who will have a powerful voice, who will spread the news, spread the information around. It really is sort of a grassroots strategy. They're not necessarily trying to directly influence world leaders, but if they can get public opinion to shift in places like the U.S. and Germany and other EU and NATO countries, then they have a better chance of getting the really practical boots on the ground support that they need. Most of the memes that we're talking about, and even a lot of the memes that the Ukrainian government has shared, are English language memes. And I wonder, is there the potential for competing narratives or competing understandings of things based on the language you speak? Absolutely. The language matters a lot on social media. And even though memes are visual, that's the caption that, that is the satire, that is the punchline and the sort of final meaning behind it. So it definitely influences who who the target is of the joke and who the in-group is and who the out-group is, so to say. And so if the Ukrainian government is using memes in English, it's because they're trying to win over English-speaking audiences. They may feel they already have the Ukrainian-speaking audiences understanding their point of view, and it's hard to reach Russian-speaking audiences since there is a lot of censorship in Russia. So they're going for the audience they can, but it definitely does shape who sees what and who responds to what. If you're a person with a presence on social media, there seems to be this performative aspect of it that can sometimes creep into it, where it almost feels like people have to share a meme or like a tweet or do something, or they're judged for being indifferent. Where does that come from? And is this sort of peer pressure to care? Is that useful at all? I think the performative nature of social media and our need to, to make a statement to show that we care, it comes from human nature. It, it comes from, we are a, a species that lives in groups and we need to sort of flag our group identity to others. So if everyone else who you care about, be it your audience or your friends, your profession that you're in is making a statement, then you're kind of obligated to do the same or else you've marked yourself as different from your group. So we are group-based animals, literally, and social media is an environment where it's really obvious who is making statements or not because there's this track record. Anyone can go to your feed and see, did you comment on this or not? So a lot of it is sort of just driven by our need to understand who's in our group, who's not in our group. And by group, it can be anything. And in this particular case, it's pro-democracy forces generally. And so that's where it comes from. Is it helpful? Yes and no, because it is helpful in times of a crisis to know where you can get support, both, you know, sort of social support, psychological support, and then even practical support if you're coming from the stance of Ukraine who needs but also when you identify strongly with a group, then that can make you intolerant of people who aren't in your group. So it can create factions and worse. So it can help, it can hurt. 
So we've talked a bit about the way regular folks use memes. We've talked a bit about how the Ukrainian government uses memes. But there is a more dangerous side of this that we saw come up, for instance, in the 2016 election where Russia was using social media and using memes to destabilize American politics. How does that play into all of this? And then does our embrace of memes make it hard to then decipher when, you know, a meme is actually propaganda from government? Yes, the Russians definitely used memes. They were very skilled at using viral bits of video and images and text to try to sway public opinion during the 2016 election. And what's been interesting is since there's been a lot of pressure on tech companies and social media companies to shut down access to different parts of Russia, we have actually seen a little bit of a drop off, at least anecdotally, people have noted that they've gotten less pushback while tweeting lately. So it'll be interesting to see if there's actually a regulatory role here in in preventing propaganda. We do not have the time to research where every image comes from, and it does make memes both helpful and really dangerous. But with perhaps some regulation or some sort of flagging, we could better decipher which ones are propaganda and which ones aren't. Most of the memes about the Ukrainian war, or at least those seen by Western Internet users, are pro-Ukraine and anti-Putin. So a lot of the debate around memes isn't based on who people are supporting, but rather if ironic or funny memes are appropriate at a time like this. But who we meme about and when we choose to meme does tell us a lot about whose pain we value. Memes tell us a lot about our social views of who is powerful or not and who is to be respected or not and whose life matters or not. And there's a heck of a lot of racism, nationalism, all sorts of prejudices involved. And it's been very clear with the Ukrainian conflict when there are white people who are dying. It's very different than when there are brown or black people dying. And we see that in memes because it memes mere reality. We see that Ukrainian residents of color who are trying to leave are not being allowed to leave. And then we, we see that world in our memes too, where it's easier to joke about something when you don't take the deaths as seriously or you think about a situation like Yemen where a lot of kids and civilians in Yemen have been dying for years at the hand of the Saudis and there's almost no memes about that in the English language social media so I think we need to keep in mind that we communicate and we use media as a reflection of our everyday lives and policies and structures that replicate racist tropes over and over again and racial realities. And so it would, again, behoove people who notice this and and care about it to point it out and for journalists to point it out and to bring attention to it. And then hopefully other people who have the capability to communicate visually or with memes can also talk about that visually and help educate people about that who may not have noticed it without other people who are more aware pointing it out to them. The debate about the memification of the Ukrainian war seems to boil down to the worry that people have become too desensitized to violence and suffering. I asked Professor Myrick if using memes to process our feelings is a signal that we devalue human life and if the Internet is to blame. Desensitization definitely can happen through media. There is your research that shows we can become desensitized to mediated violence, for example. 
the first season of Breaking Bad is really shocking, but by the time you're at the last season, the finale, you're really used to all the the blood and the gore, right? And the same thing can happen in social media, but also what research shows is that it sometimes actually does the opposite. It sensitizes people, and it depends a lot on the individual differences about that particular audience member and what they know and feel and their relationship to the topic, but it can go both ways. Once you see it and become a little bit interested, you might catch it more and more often and consume it more and more often in in a way that you care about it more. And it probably depends on your viewpoints and your worldview and your previous experiences, which will happen to you. Sharing memes or creating memes, is it any indication of detachment? I think the act of creating memes shows engagement on a topic it's your way of processing that that feeling you're having. You find a visual and you know put a caption on it and and share it with the world. Now, is sharing versus actually doing something maybe indicative of you're putting in the minimum effort? It's possible. Um, sometimes it's called clicktivism or slacktivism. The idea that we can just share a link or a meme and feel like we've said something or we've done something. But more often than not, the other thing that can happen is it actually starts to create an identity within yourself as someone who supports that cause. We typically tend to want to be consistent in our behaviors. It's an innate tendency that we don't even realize. So once you've shared something about a cause, if approached later to do more for the cause, you're actually more likely to say yes or to be willing to do it. So I think if we take a long-term view of what it means to make a meme or to share a meme, we would probably find that it actually has some benefits as far as supporting causes, not necessarily in the misinformation realm, although it could go the same way. Once you share misinformation, it may become harder to actually be convinced that it's not true because you don't want to be proven wrong. So it can be powerful over time, but in both good and bad ways. The benefit of memes is they can give us just a small boost of either energy or coping ability. And so one benefit of pairing memes with more serious news or more lengthy information may be that it gives us a broader outlook that we can better handle the stressful negative information instead of shutting it off, tuning it out, rather than people who say, oh, memes are bad or memes are good, is it might benefit us to think about it as part of a larger media diet or media ecosystem, where if we paired this type of humorous or satirical content with more long-form information or, or more serious information that we need, we might find a lot of benefits from that particular pairing by understanding our psychological need to not be totally overwhelmed with negative information. I think that would be the best of both worlds if we could sort of sandwich memes around important news that we need to digest every day. We're going to switch gears for a minute to talk about superheroes. And not just these guys. Avengers! For more than a decade, our favorite flying, teleporting, cape-wearing characters from the comic books have blasted across the big and small screen. For a long time, excluding Batwoman and Wonder Woman, America's favorite superheroes were overwhelmingly men. 
But with their TV and film adaptations, DC and Marvel have tried to shake that up with characters like Jessica Jones, The Black Widow, Shuri, Harley Quinn, and Captain Marvel, to name a few. But how many of those characters do you think were actually created by women? The answer is not many, but that's changing. It's not really the brown girls from Jersey City who saved the world. Maybe now they do. Miss Marvel is one of the latest additions to the Marvel Universe. And I know what you're thinking. How big is this damn universe? Well, it seems to be big enough for one more teenage girl. Kamala Khan is a lot different than the other superheroes we've seen on our screen. For one, she's a 16-year-old Pakistani-American girl. For two, she came straight from the imagination of G. Willow Wilson, a female comic book writer and her female co-creators, in a world that's long been dominated by men. Here Wilson is in a TED Talk she did a few years ago. A series like this was, by the superhero industry math of the time, doomed to fail. It was the trifecta of death. New characters don't sell. Female characters don't sell. Minority characters don't sell. In order for a series like this to succeed, it would have to shatter decades of conventional wisdom. We're celebrating Women's History Month by highlighting some very cool millennial women who are breaking barriers and making history in their fields. And we're going to get it started with some of our favorite writers. As it stands, comic book writers are overwhelmingly male. According to one report that tallied up the credits a few years ago, women were responsible for creating about 17% of DC and Marvel's comics in 2018. That's up from 10% in 2014. And G. Willow Wilson is one of the women who's changing the landscape and our perceptions of who gets to be a superhero. Miss Marvel is the first Muslim-American heroine in Marvel Comics. And Wilson says that when the character was first introduced in 2014, she was prepared for the backlash. They pitched me a very simple idea. We want to create a new, young, American-Muslim superheroine and put her on her own monthly comic book series. And I went silent for a moment because inside I was thinking, no, you're crazy. You'll have to hire an intern just to open all the hate mail. We were certainly prepared for failure, possibly even ridicule. We were not prepared for the series to get coverage from the New York Times and CNN and the BBC and Al Jazeera and the Colbert Report. We were not prepared for comic book fans to start dressing up as Ms. Marvel <laughs> before the series even launched. And it's not just Ms. Marvel's identity that makes her different. Wilson tried to break away from some of the familiar tropes we see in comics. I gave Kamala that rarest of superhero backstories, an intact family. Nobody dies, no one is orphaned, no one is murdered. She takes on that superhero mantle to put a dent in that broken system. She knows she can't save everybody, but she can save somebody. The series is one of Marvel's most successful digital comics ever. And now Miss Marvel is headed to streaming. Look for the Disney Plus series later this year. Another project that may be heading from page to screen, Children of Blood and Bone. We're all familiar with Harry Potter's world of wizardry and witchcraft, set in a fictional England complete with a grand boarding school and names like Neville Longbottom and Hermione Granger. 
But what about a magic world set in West Africa? So the book is called Children of Blood and Bone, and it's basically Black Panther, but with magic. Tommy Adeyemi is the author of the Legacy of the Orisha series. Adeyemi is Nigerian-American, and she uses elements of her culture to create a fictional world. Here she is on Good Morning America, talking about the debut novel in the trilogy, The Children of Blood and Bone. It follows a girl named Zaylee, and she's in this fight to bring magic back to her people. And the world is like an analog West African society, and it's based off by Nigerian heritage. So, you know, the cities are all named after Nigerian cities. You're going to see them with geles and, you know, dashikis. You know, they're riding giant lions through the jungle. Like, it's this really big, epic adventure. J.K. Rowling's success changed the perception that worlds of magic filled with spells and omens can only be conjured up by men. Now, women writers like N.K. Jemisin, Nettie Okorafor, and Tommy Adeyemi are changing the perception that magic is only wielded by white characters. The Children of Blood and Bone and its sequel, Children of Virtue and Vengeance, both debuted in number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And earlier this year, Paramount bought the rights to Adeyemi's series with the hopes of making it the next Harry Potter. And Adeyemi is reportedly adapting the script. Now, when it comes to television, there are more women in writers' rooms than ever before. And we've seen the result of that shift with the success of critically acclaimed shows like I May Destroy You, created by Michaela Cole, or Fleabag, written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Or Russian Doll, which was a collab between Natasha Leon, Leslie Headland, and Amy Poehler. Of course, there's still a long way to go for women in representation in writers' rooms, especially for women of color. But trailblazers like Shonda Rhimes, Issa Rae, and Courtney Kemp are creating shows that feature complex characters of color in storylines that hijack the group chat. Another show that's been hijacking my group chat lately is a new female-led comedy that should definitely be on your watch list. Abbott Elementary was created by Quinta Brunson. The mockumentary centers around a group of Philadelphia teachers doing the best they can with a small budget and lots and lots of patience. Guys, I need a new rug. Mine is officially done. Mm, Me too. I shook mine out and all of the asthma kids had to go to the nurse's office. Yeah, mine's busted. And you can't class up a rug like you can a couch with a nice coat of plastic. Hey, yo! What it do, baby boobs? What y'all think about this little film crew I brought in here? Distracting, makes our jobs harder. But exciting. We about to be on TV. Brunson basically got her start as a Twitter meme. And now she's known for her work on Black Lady Sketch Show, along with fellow Abbott Elementary writer Brittany Nichols. To me, Abbott Elementary is one of the funniest new shows on television. But I'm not the only one who thinks that. The show has quadrupled its audience since it premiered, and it has the highest ratings of a comedy series since Modern Family. Huh? Random man! Child pants! Oh, no. No, 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 no. I'm Gregory, the, uh, the sub for Mr. Schwartz. Okay. Oh. But that's still not explaining the pants. Security! Oh, hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, one of my kids had to go to the bathroom. So I brought him, but then he accidentally went on himself. Oh, okay. I tried to flush the toilet, and the water shot back up in the air, and I'm just... Oh, God, no one told you about reverse toilet. No, why is that even a thing? I know, I'm sorry. We'll have a list of the women who wrote all these amazing works we talked about in the show notes. And next week, we'll tell you about a few more women we think you should know. That's it for the show this week. If you're listening to this, you should know we think you're pretty awesome. And we want to know more about you and hear what you think about this show. And we made a really easy way for you to tell us. It's a survey. 
It takes about 10 minutes, and we'd love for you to fill it out. Just go to www.theskim.com slash pop survey. That's www.theskim with two M's dot com slash pop survey. And pop survey is all one word. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with a creative and talented team every week to make the podcast. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Graylin Brashear is the Skim's director of audio. Thanks to Professor Nicole Myrick for talking to me this week. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, tell a friend, and fill out that survey. <laughs>